So this evening, I would like to talk about awakening Buddhahood and meditative experiences. And first I'd like to look at some examples, some kind of metaphor for awakening that are found in the Korean Zen tradition. So in Korea, when you do a ceremony, generally you light a candle, you offer some water, and you also light some incense. And you do this because each of them is like a metaphor, an example of awakening, kind of shows you an attribute, a quality of awakening. And so the first one is a candle. And the candle actually has two parts. One is that as it disappears, it produces light. So then there is like a metaphor for selflessness, that it disappears as it gives light to others. And then the other aspect is that the candle is both illuminated and illuminating. So when the candle is lit, the whole candle itself changes colors. So it's kind of like the candle is lit. So that awakening makes you brighter within yourself. But that's also the candle lit outside itself. So it's illuminating. It is providing light for things outside of itself. So that this idea that awakening will brighten ourselves up, but also brighten ourselves up for others. And the second one is the incense. And again, the incense is similar at one level to the candle. That as the incense is lit and spread its fragrance, the incense disappears. So again, this symbol of selflessness, one disappearing at the same time as one is giving the fragrance. But all the other aspect of the symbol is that actually the fragrance of the incense is going to go everywhere without discrimination. And the incense is not going to say, oh, over there, they're not so very nice, so I'm not going to go over there. I bet there, they're really nice, so I'm just going to turn on the fragrance just that way. That's not what the incense does. The, the fragrance goes everywhere. So that idea that in awakening, there is this idea of openness, of non-discrimination, of, in a way, width, uh, that there is this large opening to the whole world. And then the last symbol, the water. Again, the water has two aspects. One of them is that it's reflective, so that, in a way, anything that comes above the water will reflect it, just as it is. 
And again, the water is not going to say, I don't like that one. I am not going to reflect him. But this one, oh, you know, I'm going to embellish it. You know, it's so nice. It just reflects just as it is. So that in a way, in awakening that quality of, again, non-grasping, non-amplifying, non-discrimination. And also one thing with water is that it will adapt itself to whatever container it goes in. So again, that idea of adaptability, that there is less fixity and there is more adaptability. And then this brings me to look a little at Buddhahood. What is interesting in terms of awakening, and it often one of its kind of uh, symbol or manifestation is a Buddha. And I think it's very important to see that over time in Buddhism, Buddhahood changed how people view Buddhahood. I think it's very important to see that there was actually different development about that idea. And the first idea of Buddhahood was, in a way, the manifestation as manifested by the Buddha and then as understood by the tradition. And as understood by the tradition, the awakening of the Buddha was a big one, the big E, the big enlightenment, big A, big awakening. And that he had to go through many, 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 many lifetimes And then in the last life, he had to be born in a man's body. And only then could he have the super-duper awakening. (laughs) And personally, I have a bit of trouble with a gendered awakening. But that was the first vision about that. And then over time, developed this idea that awakening was like a seed, that each person had this seed of awakening within themselves. And then the only thing you had to do was to water it. And then within one lifetime, now you could become a Buddha, not the Buddha, but you could become a Buddha. So again, we cannot move from this only one to you can have many Buddhas with a little b. And then you had the third idea which developed that actually it's not a seed. Awakening is not a seed. It's an actuality that actually you already awaken, you're already enlightened. And the only thing you need to do is to see that. And I think what is important to see is that these two last ideas are not, often people put them in opposition. I remember many years ago when I was still a nun, and my teacher, my Zen teacher, Master Kuzan, was invited to give a talk at a Tibetan center. And so the Tibetan center, the teacher there believed in the seed idea, and my teacher believed in the actuality idea. And so before we went, I said, you know, master, master, be, be, be a little kind of, you know, careful and, you know, not too uh, intransigent, you know, and dogmatic. I did not phrase it that way. That's what I meant. <laughs> you know, you know, be kind of like a good guest to the center. And he told me, no, 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 I'm going to tell them like it <laughs> is. 
So I could not say anything to that. So then we went there. And he gave his talk, and then at the end, he was really talking about, you know, you are Buddha already, and da, 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 da. And then people were starting to ask questions, and I could see the teacher, Tibetan teacher, were getting really, really uncomfortable. So we agreed to stop. <laughs> and I could really see, in a way, both staying on their position. One is actuality, the other one is a seed. But personally, in a way, the two ideas, complement each other. I think it's very important to see that although these kind of things are presented as dogma and as the truth or the right way to understand it, I think they're just different ideas. And if we look at them, we can see how each, in a way, makes sense in its own way. But actually, they are more complementary than we might think in, in terms of like different traditions being in competition. And so this, in a way, I think, refers a little to what is kind of in the Zen tradition. You find this debate about sudden and gradual. So is a practice sudden or gradual? Is awakening sudden or gradual? And this is a big debate up to this day in the Zen tradition. And of course, the best thing is sudden, sudden. Sudden awakening, sudden practice, that's the top. And if you ever talk about anything else, you get into trouble. You know, if you talk about gradual, it's like, woo, gradual, you know. But what was interesting was that the place where I was trained in Korea was one of the rare places in Korea where they believed and practiced sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. And because of that, everybody else looked down upon them. You know, they are gradualists. You know, they're far from the real way. But again, I think one has to be careful here to not see the sudden and gradual as opposed. But I would say, in a way, to see the sudden and gradual as two dimensions or practice. And in a way, the sudden aspect, I think, is when there is a potential here which can open at any moment. So, and there is this aspect to the practice that we can experience either when we sit on a meditation retreat or when we are in our daily life. And suddenly, something goes. Suddenly, we see something we've not seen before. And generally, it is not a gradual thing. It's kind of sudden. We see something suddenly. We understand something suddenly. We experience ourselves differently suddenly. And so I think, to me, what this is about is kind of a moment of release, a moment of degrasping, which in a way can happen anytime. But then at the same time, there is a gradual aspect to the practice because our habits, our unskillful, painful habits, have developed over time. And generally, you need to work on them. And so these generally don't disappear overnight, sometimes, but generally they disappear very gradually. And it's kind of like we have to practice again and again and again for them to really disappear. 
And that's what is interesting even in terms of the Zen tradition, who say they are sudden, sudden, and who say, claim they have a shortcut to awakening. And if you look at the stories, before they get their sudden, sudden stuff, they've been meditating for eight years, or 10 years, or 12 years. So to me, it doesn't sound very sudden. You know? <laughs> I mean, when the awakening happened, it's sudden. Fair enough, but to that point, they were not kind of, you know, twiddling their thumb. Generally, they were doing something. And so, in a way, to see that together, to very much to see that we are, in a way, the two need to go together, the sudden awakening is an opening. It dissolves some of the habit. It dissolves some of the grasping so there can be some release then the gradual cultivation is going to help us to integrate. Because I think this is one of the big things, that you can have a sudden awakening, sudden insight. But how can this become integrated in your daily life and not stay on the cushion or not stay in that moment of what one calls glorious seeing? And so... That's what was interesting, for example, with my teacher, Master Cousin. He was reputed to have had three awakenings. And so you might think one should be enough, you know. <laughs> but actually, no, he had three awakenings because in, a way, in the way they thought about it, which makes sense to me too, is that he had a certain opening. And then he practiced after that gradually. Then he had another opening. Then again, he practiced gradually. He kind of practiced, integrated it gradually. Then another opening. And what was interesting the third time, because in Korea, if you have an opening, a breakthrough, an awakening, you go to your teacher, and you generally write a poem. And then generally the teacher says, yes, you have a good understanding, this is a real thing, or no, this is not the real thing. The, kind of, the poem kind of generally is one of the things. And what was interesting with my teacher, on the last time he had the breakthrough, he wrote a poem, which he showed again to his teacher. And then at that point, the teacher said, now you know more than me, and so I will become your student. So anyway, it shows that the teacher is there to help us, to guide us, to actually develop our own potential, which can become greater than the teacher experience themselves. And so I think this is really what we have to be careful with this idea of sudden, is to see that, yes, we can have a sudden degrasping release, but then we really need to actualize it, to really kind of, in a way, integrate it, in our life. And also to be humble in terms of, you know, we might have a breakthrough understanding insight, but we might still have something to learn. And to me, this is something that really humbled me when I was in Korea and my teacher was getting ill and he was uh, not so well. And one day we went to walk together, so he would have kind of a little fresh air and feel a little better. And then at some point we stopped and sat on a, on a trunk. And then he said to me, 
You know, we never know how we're going to be when we die. We have no idea. Even I don't know. And for this reason, you really need to practice to the last minute because you never know when it's going to happen. And that's what he did. To the last second of his life, he was meditating. Even after he became paralyzed through a stroke, he asked to be seated in meditation so he could continue with the meditation practice. And if I think of a a nun I met when I was doing one of my books on Buddhism and women, and this is a a nun who became a nun in order to kind of uh, awaken and practice and all these things. And she said, you know, she goes to, to the nunnery and then generally you study the sutra before you go to the meditation hall. And then she found this sutra where it said, every Buddha is a sentient being and every sentient being is a Buddha. And when she saw that, it struck her so much that she decided to take this as a practice. And then she became, in a way, a scholar and a teacher of that text. And then I asked her, what is your practice? And she said to me, oh, in the morning I get up, do a little chanting, a little meditation. And then my practice, when I leave uh, the nunnery to go to, to teach at university, my practice is to be a Buddha. My practice is to try to have the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha in my daily life. And then at the end of the day, she would come back home to the nunnery and then she would look how Buddha-like had she been and how sentient being-like had she been. And then she would start again the next day. And so I would say that actually we are at the crossroad of the two dimensions of depth and width. But in a way, the sudden is kind of more like the depth dimension and the width is more like kind of a, the width dimension. The gradual is a width dimension. And it kind of a little sh- represents a little what we're doing here. Here we're kind of more in the depth of being in silence, having a schedule, doing the retreat. And then when we go back into our daily life, we go back to the width. And I think it's very important to see that we are at the crossroad of these two. One dimension is not better than the other, but they are different. Well, we are here, we are very narrow circumstances. So within those narrow circumstances, then in a way we can develop the depth. But then, when we go back into daily life, we go back to these multiple circumstances. And then we can develop the breadth of the practice in actuality. And to me, the two dimensions actually feed each other, nurture each other. Then I wanted to say a few things about experiences. And Noticing, in a way, because you see, again, we do meditation. And if, you have, if we have read a few books about meditation, 
then we start to get ideas about what should happen when we, we meditate. Because generally, a lot of the books we read present what I would call an idealized version of you know, the best that can happen. And so what you presented is kind of, you know, oh, and then also your friends might have certain experience and tell you about it, etc., etc. And so often what happens is that you sit in meditation waiting for something special to happen. You know? And so we wait, wait, wait. And I'm not saying not to do that. I think it's unescapable. But I think we have to be careful that just the waiting of it is not necessarily the cultivation of it. And also the more we're waiting for something special to happen, if it happens, generally we get very excited. This is it, awakening, next minute. And then as soon as we get excited, it goes. When I think when we experience what I would call meditative experiences in um, meditation, it's just the thing to do, actually, is to be with it. And that's what the Buddha said, to sustain the positive state once it has arisen. And actually, the way to sustain the positive state is generally not to do anything but just be with it. Not to grasp at it or to identify or to comment on it or to start to think, how am I going to tell my friend about it or whatever it is. <laughs> but just to be with it. For example, sometimes it happens that we're doing the meditation, sitting or walking, and suddenly we feel very quiet and clear. And just being with that, being quiet and clear in that moment. Because what I would call that is just a moment of releasing, the moment of degrasping, which happened by itself. But because we've been practicing, that's generally why it happens. But you can never predict when it's going to happen. And then the thing to do there is just to be with it. Not to do anything, but just hold it very gently. And what is interesting is that if you do that, just to be with it, to experience it, to know it, then generally it lasts a little longer. But then like everything, it's impermanent. And so the energy change or the focus change, and then it dissipates. But what is in a way interesting about having that experience is that we experience ourselves differently. Instead of thinking we're always like this and we will never change, suddenly we, oh yeah, I can experience myself differently. And I think that's quite nurturing in a way. Then some other time, we can have what is called an insight. So before, we did not know something, and suddenly, we know something. We, we see something so differently. And I think, but what, when we experience that, that we suddenly see something, very clearly. And it has this kind of like quality of amazing clarity, amazing brightness, and also that it looks so obvious. And then we have this idea 
that because it was so clear, it was so intense, so evident, then it's going to be like that forever. And generally not. Because in a way that came upon certain conditions. And then that generally is impermanent too. And then the, the energy of that goes. And so what you're left with, you know, is a memory. A memory of that moment, of seeing things in such a different way. And that, of course, is going to make a little difference. But in a way, you need to integrate it, not just to have the memory, but in a way to kind of like, it's nearly like starting to look at things in that way. After I became, uh, I stopped being a nun, I became, because that was the only thing I could do in England to earn my living, I became a house cleaner. And actually, I had quite a few insights when I was house cleaning. And one day, I was uh, doing a retreat, and at the same time, I had to do the house cleaning. So I finished the meditation, and then I go to do my three hours of uh, house cleaning. And then I go to the bathroom, and then, you know, there is a toilet bowl, you know, with a top on. That was always my fear, you know, that I found something in it. <laughs> so I go there, with, I go there, and I open it, and there is a big one. <laughs> and I see this big thing floating. <laughs> and I look at it, and I think, hmm, this is a form. This is a shape. It is as it is. <laughs> and then I still flushed it because that was my job. <laughs> but what was interesting is that there was no grasping. There was no amplification of unpleasant feeling. There was no unpleasant feeling, actually. There was just seeing what was there and, in a way, creatively engaging with it. And to me, that was very interesting to see that. And so to see that, of course, was helpful because it helps when you see things, you know, who are a bit kind of uh, ugly or smelly or whatever. But it does not totally transform my life, you know, that, you know, anything is dirty is great, you know, form again. It depends how I am, you know. It depends how I feel and what it is and how, again, my, my body might react to what I am seeing. Then you have also what you can experience is sometimes mystical experience. And that, the quality of that is generally very exhilarating, kind of like you feel very joyful, very expensive, very kind of oh, a little excitement with it. And it could be that suddenly you see everybody as a Buddha nature, or whatever it might be, which kind of suddenly instead of being you in this small thing, very fixed and solid, you can have suddenly this really expensive experience of being human in that moment. And again, this can be very uplifting and one feels very different. But then again, this might generally go, it's impermanent. And then the challenge is that can you see the Buddha nature of your neighbor? You know, who keeps having, you know, he wears this kind of funny bell outside the house and you can't sleep at night, you know, or whatever it might be. Because it's one thing to have the experience 
And in a way, it's another thing to actually fully integrate it in our life, to live it in our life. And I think that can only be, in a way, a gradual process, kind of creatively engaged with our different circumstances. And then another thing you might experience is what I would call the opening of the heart. You're sitting in meditation or you're sitting outside and suddenly you feel your heart really opening. And the way you could describe it is that you have no problem with nobody whatsoever. Even that guy over there is okay. And even that lady over there, it's, she is okay. And it's amazing to experience that, that feeling of boundlessness, that feeling of really seeing everybody as having the right to exist and actually feeling benign feeling toward them. I think, it's, again, it's really feel amazing, because generally we always have one person we can't include. No way, not that one. No, no, no. You know, tomorrow we're going to do the loving kindness, and generally with the loving kindness, there's always a question, but what about that really, really nasty one? I really can't do it for that one. No way. And it's interesting to experience this Everybody is included. This really inclusive experience. But again, it goes. And then it's kind of back to even including ourselves, you know, in the love we might have, including how much can we include in our daily life. Then we have another one, which is what we, you can call the oneness or the emptiness. And that's a little strange because you're sitting there generally and suddenly you have the experience that you don't experience yourself like you do, do normally. Your body doesn't seem to have any border. You don't experience yourself as being solid. And you can have this feeling that you kind of nearly dissolve in the kind of the universe. It can feel like you're at, at one with the universe sometimes. And people then can get a little troubled. You know, like once I had this person saying, you know, but I don't feel I exist. But then I said, look, you know, I can touch you. You exist, your body. You see, the body is still there in the same way. But it's just that we experience ourselves so differently. We don't feel so fixed, so solid, and so separate. I think that's what happens. When we feel so solid and so fixed, then it makes us feel very separate. That our border, back to the walls, that we really feel these walls between us and the rest. And then that goes. And of course, if that goes, we're going to experience ourselves very differently. But it doesn't mean we disappear. But the way we feel about ourselves changes. And I think that can be, again, all of these can be just nurturing in terms of releasing a little the fixity. But generally, very quickly, 
we come back to how we feel generally. And I think that's fine. Because I think if, we, if you had that oceanic feeling all the time, I'm not sure you could really kind of, you know, uh, work very well in daily life, you know. <laughs> I think it's very important to see that these experiences can be interesting. But I am not sure that this is experiences that we would necessarily need to feel all the time in our daily life. I think this is very important. And this is one of the things why personally I don't uh, put much emphasis or talk about the jhanas, the famous meditative absorptive state. Because one of the things about the jhanas is that first they require very specific circumstances. No noise, no responsibility, meditating for hours on end, day long, for, I mean, for days on end. And I personally, what I feel about these states is that they are not practical. You can't cook in a genic state. You can't have a conversation in a genic state. You can't pick up your children at school in a genic state. So, I mean, of course they might feel, I mean, you might feel very good in it. I, I don't say that. But I feel they're not practical. So I think that's where we have to be. To me, this is what we have to be very careful with meditative experiences. That it's a moment of release. So it's kind of a moment where we can have a little different experience of ourselves and of the world. But what is the most important part is not the exceptionalism of the experience, but the release of the experience. Because the only thing we can take into our daily life is a releasing, is a degrasping, which then will make a difference in the way we behave, in the way we are. And that's why I think we have to be careful of thinking we have a good retreat, we have a med good meditation because we feel a little different. Instead of seeing what is important is the cultivation. And to see that what is important is, I would say, nearly the accumulation of that cultivation. So that, in a way, when we go out, there will be a bit of that effect of the release, which personally I don't feel depends on the way we feel when we meditate. And what is more important is the fact that we do the meditation, the fact that we do the cultivation to the degree we can in whatever condition we are. And what is interesting is that generally people will say, for example, after a seven-day retreat, the effect lasts a month or two months, depending. And generally what, what suddenly makes the thing change, having a less open way of looking at the world, having a less stable way of looking at the world, so that something happened. Either one becomes very tired, or one can't sleep, or one has a big trouble, and then it kind of shifts. And then you cannot go back to that. In a way, you kind of have to work again on releasing more in order to 
back to a bit having more possibility of creative engagement. So I think we have to be careful about that. The assumption we have about what we need to experience in meditation for it to be really kind of like worthwhile. I mean, once I had a, a lady come to me saying, I've been meditating for so many years and my meditation really is not that great. I can't focus, I still have thought, etc. I still feel sleepy. But then I asked her, but how about your life? She said, oh, great, wonderful. <laughs> great, my life is so much better. I am so much better in my life. So I think we have to be careful of the assumption of what we should experience when we sit in meditation. And what we need to experience in order to have major breakthrough, whatever. And how that, is it going to make a, a difference in our life or not? There is one book, which I would not recommend to read, but I'm sure if I tell you, you all go and read it. <laughs> and this is called the Zen book, The Three Pillars of Zen by Roshi Kaplow. You read this book, and then you feel terrible because you have really had no breakthrough, no awakening, waste of time what you've been doing up to now. Because you have a whole middle chapter, which is all about breakthrough every two minutes. You know, all these people have a breakthrough. <laughs> but what is weird with all these breakthroughs is that it doesn't seem to make much difference to how they live afterward. On the moment, it seems amazing, but afterward... It doesn't seem to change the way they are in their life. And some time ago I was looking at some uh, comments on some, I can't remember, on the internet. And you had this uh, person saying, you know, when I meditate with this amazing practice, I feel this oceanic feeling, being one with the world, and ecstatic, and oh... But after my girlfriend left me, I fell to pieces. And what, sh what it was showing to me is that he could have this amazing experience, but they did not seem to kind of manage to, to, to have enough something in the person so that when he has a big difficulty, he can creatively engage with it. So I think that's what we have to be careful. What is it? in a way, we are trying to do with the meditation. And that, I think that's what we come back, in a way, to the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is not just about having amazing experience. The Eightfold Path is about appropriate vision, which is really to just about being aware of impermanence. The second one is appropriate thought, which actually is about having harmless thought, non-vindictive thought, and thought of renunciation. Then you have appropriate speech, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate concentration, appropriate mindfulness, appropriate concentration. So to see that, yes, we might have meditative experience. I think that comes with the meditation practice, but that is not the end of the path. This is not the object of the path. 
the object of the path is to develop the whole thing. And what in the way in the meditation can help us is helping the deep grasping so that then it's easier to talk wisely, to act wisely, etc., etc. So, I think that stops here. Are there any questions or comments? When you refer to creative engagement, would that be the same as investigation? Um, I would call investigation, like uh, looking deeply experiential inquiry, I would call that more vipassana, which is one of the things we cultivate in the meditation. For me, creative engagement comes with... In, uh, in meditation, you cultivate concentration, which helps you to be more spacious and clear. You develop experiential inquiry, which helps you to be more clear and more open. The two together seems to me help us to develop creative awareness, which generally help us to manifest, to develop creative engagement. So personally, I would see creative engagement as the opposite of grasping. But it's kind of like more modern terminology because generally it's called as non-attachment, non-grasping. But I think non-grasping, non-attachment kind of is just kind of seems to be more about just restraint. I'm not going to do that. And personally, I feel what we develop is more than not doing something. I think we, by de-grasping, there is a space in which our potential can flourish, can creatively flourish. <laughs> so I see creative engagement as, in a way, uh, an effect, an effect of the practice but also something that we can cultivate, of course. Yes? I was wondering how you felt when uh, Master Kuzan and the Tibetan teacher, each one hold strongly to their dogma. It looks like it's a strong case of grasping. Well, I think what I learned, to me this is what I learned, is that the last thing that goes, if it goes, and I'm not sure it goes, is grasping to one's experiences or grasping to one's culture. So the way I see it is often we have this um, very um, idealistic notion of awakening. And to me what it showed me is that you are limited by your conditions. You see, because often we have this idea of awakening enlightenment as being a-conditional. But there is this idea in Buddhism that in a way, until you are in this world, in this condition, you have an awakening which is conditional. So to me, what it showed me in terms of Master Kuzan was that he was um, conditioned by his experiences, which means his method was good for him, so it was good for everybody, and the best one, of course. Then, because that's all he knew. And the Tibetan teacher, that's all he knew, his own method. So how could he say the other one was better? He could not say that, because he did not know it. 
So I think, in a way, it showed me the condition, because I saw it with the Dalai Lama, I saw it with Thich Nhat Hanh. All the great teachers I met showed me in different way that they were limited by their experience, and they're also limited by their culture. That was very interesting, to see that culture is so embedded in us, that it's kind of physiological, and that awakening might not necessarily make us go beyond that. But I think, of course, for us, nowadays we live in a more pluralistic world, and I think we kind of start to, to be more aware of kind of like, you know, that there are different cultures, different ideas. So at that level, we're more open to that, to see that we're culture, culturally bound. But I think if you don't have those ideas, then, yeah, you don't have them. So you're kind of more embedded in your culture. I had a wonderful, uh, this is a very minor thing, but when I was with a, uh, helping with my teacher when he was traveling in America. And we had, uh, there, there was a big ceremony, so they just starting to have tapes and videos. And, and so there was a video of a Buddhist film that they, they rented the TV to see that. And then they kept the TV a little longer. And then they watched other things on it. <laughs> so uh, we were there. And then Master Kuzan, so where are they gone? And then, of course, we're all watching TV. And we were all watching The Invisible Men. <laughs> and so he came down, see what we're doing, and he watched it. Oh, he's there. Oh, he's not there. And then after that, and he thought it was totally uninteresting, so he left. And after that, I tried to explain to him the concept of The Invisible Men. <laughs> it was impossible. Because it was not in his culture. I mean, it was not. <laughs> he did not have that idea in his brain. So, however enlightened, you know, the concept was not there. So I think we have to be very careful of what we think awakening is going to do. Because generally, it give, we have this idea that, you know, we're going to be above all conditions. We're going to know everything. And personally, I don't think so. And so I think for the teacher from, from the tradition before. Now I think it's changing a little. But personally, I think it's very, very hard to go out of one's own experience. Really, really hard. For example, I have a friend. He's a great teacher. He's going to come to Guy House, I think. I'm not sure this year or next year. And he's called Lee Brasington. And he's a Jana specialist. And he's a wonderful guy. And so he came to stay with us for three, three days. Three days nonstop we talked about practice, this and that. We both very open, very non-dogmatic. But in the end, we could not agree that his method was better than mine or my method was better than his. <laughs> I could not go there. I could not go as far as that. I, because I did not know his method. I never done it. He did not know mine. He never done it. And so we could not, we could accept each other's method that we could do. That he was good, we could do. But we could not go beyond that. That was very interesting for me to see that. That actually we were bound by our experiences. And uh, I think maybe... Uh, if it's a quick one. 
No, no, I would not. I would not recommend this myself, because I think there is a much easier way. I mean, in terms of experience of, of cultural, I think there is a much easier way to go beyond your culture. It's actually what I experienced living in Korea for ten years. But what was interesting for me was that to see first how operating system it was physiologically, like in Korea, again and again. People would tell me, no, that is not the right way to do this. This is the right way to do it. And basically they were saying, I realized I was doing the French way and they were doing the Korean way. But what was interesting is that physically I could not do it. I remember a little girl, five years old, I was trying to watch the clothes by hand on a stone like they do there. She looks at me. Pitifully, I said, you're really <laughs> hopeless. Push you, push you. I'll show you. And then she showed me how to do it. And I could not physically do it. And I really had to force myself to try to do it the way they did it. It's kind of like nearly physiological, even wringing clothes. They do it kind of like that. And, I mean, I do it like this. <laughs> and it was so hard. to. And it was very interesting. But living there... Yeah, I could see. First, I became aware that it was French culture, not universal culture. And also, it, it became softer. It became much softer. So I was because I was more aware of that. That that was one of the condition. So no, I do believe that actually the cultural conditioning can disappear. But I don't think through awakening. <laughs> but more through living in another culture, being open to the other culture. And I know for myself, part of me is part Korean, because I react like a Korean now sometimes. It's very interesting. And so I, I would say, yes, it can change. And I would not recommend psychedelics myself. Why not? Personally, I, I myself think it's better to try to change things. I mean... Um, Medicine is different. If you need medicine for various mental illness, that I think is very important. But uh, I think psychedelics are really changing the chemistry in the body. And personally, I prefer to do this myself through the meditation. But of course, if, you know, I'm not going to say to people to, to do what they can do, but uh, I prefer to do things myself than having it chemically induced. But that's my uh, experiences. So I'm limited by my experiences. Thank you. So now there is a little walking. <laughs> 